Wonderful. Well, that's been a full morning, hasn't it? It's about to get even better. Um, Jack. Jack and Claire and Mary are back with us. Come on up. That'd be great. I know many of you will know Jack, but for those who don't, we thought this would be a great opportunity, actually, for you to meet the whole family while they're back. So... She's really happy. (laughs) What I'm going to do, rather than interrupt again, I'm just going to quickly pray for Jack now as he speaks to us, and then I'll leave him to introduce um, his family and to start speaking from there. So, Father God, we just thank you for the privilege of hearing these guys, having them back with us and welcoming them, God, but also the privilege of hearing what you've been speaking to Jack um, for this morning. We pray you'd anoint him, continue to anoint him. Holy Spirit, would you open our hearts to receive what you've given him to say. In the name of Jesus, amen. Oh man, I got this. Well, this is overwhelming. It's good to be back. It's lovely to see you all, and uh, it's lovely for Mary with her joy to be here. She was last here when she was four days, uh, and uh, she's very happy to be here. And even seeing her joy this morning and her energy uh, has been a reminder of how we come to the Father uh, as little children, uh, and. Um, Today's about celebration. Today's about celebrating baptism, celebrating sending people forth into the world, celebrating lives well lived, celebrating what it means to be a community in Christ. Today's about celebration. Uh, I want us, well, maybe I can share honestly. um, This week, these, these last two days have been some of the harder ones in my life. And when the world falls apart and when things come tumbling down, All we have is celebration. All we have is Jesus. And all we can celebrate about is Jesus. And I love how God would humble us and humble me as I share this message. I cannot celebrate many things in this world, but we can celebrate Christ. And we can celebrate Christ all the more vigorously in a place of need. And I believe the Lord has humbled me this week so I can share with you humbly what it means to celebrate Christ from our hearts in spirit and in truth. So, um, uh, yeah, maybe do you want to go to God? Um, yeah, I, um, can we just clap my wife? He's the most amazing. <laughs> I'm preaching to myself today as much as I'm preaching to any of you. Uh, all of us are in critical need of the cause to celebrate. The joy of the Lord is our strength. The joy of the world is not our strength. No other joy is our strength except the joy of the Lord. Amen. Today, we need to celebrate. In our lives, we need to celebrate. But as important as whether we celebrate is what we celebrate or who we celebrate. Uh, It's a great joy to be with you. Maybe I should just tell you a bit about who I am and then we can get on with celebrating. My wife and I, we live on the edge of... Uh, and we lead a team um, of 10 people, and it is our conviction and our joy and our celebration to have caught a glimpse of what God's heart is for this land, which is almost entirely Muslim. Uh, The tribe we are living among, maybe a million people, is almost exclusively Muslim, and we have 
caught a hold not only of what God wants to do, but also we are taking steps to see baptisms, to see churches, to see community, and to see celebration in Christ in those Muslim peoples. And uh, it's a hot place. It's a sandy place. It's a sunny place. It has sandstorms, scorpions, camels, motorbikes, Muslims, uh, malnutrition, a lot of different things that we may not experience here day to day. So I come from a very different place, and yet I come all the way back thousands of miles. I land in this country, and I land among family, because that's what you guys are. You have sent us, and as we come back uh, for our uh, maybe annual uh, family reunion, which is what this is today for me. Uh, um, It's very precious. and It's very special. And we have cause to celebrate. Um, We live in a desert. Water is scarce. Uh, Wine is even scarcer. We don't drink at all. Uh, And uh, we've just come back. We've just been to three weddings uh, in the space of two weeks. Um, We have one more next week. And we've been enjoying a few fine vintages here and there of wine. And so very appropriately, I've been asked to share today about the time Jesus went to a wedding. And Jesus uh, celebrated and Jesus turned water into wine. Maybe we can uh, open our Bibles at John 2 verses 1 to 11 and read the story. John 2, 1 to 11. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Why do you involve me? Jesus replied. My hour has not yet come. His mother said to his servants, Do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 80 to 120 liters. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests. Guests have had too much to drink, but you have saved the best till now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory. And his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and brothers and his disciples. There they stayed for a few days. This is a fascinating passage. For me, just has so many questions that spring to mind straight away. Like, how much wine is that? That's like 800 bottles of wine, to put it in our terms. And questions like, why did he talk to his mother like that? And um, why did he talk to her like that and then do the miracle anyway? And... Um, what did the bridegroom make of all this? Uh, And maybe, why are they insinuating drunkenness? There's all these things, and I I, I don't quite know what to make of it. But the question we really want to grapple with today, and I may not answer all of those, I'm afraid, is what does this tell us about celebration? And if you were to look at this passage, 
uh, and you had to share on the miracle of celebration, what would your basic argument be? What would your basic take on this thing be? Maybe it would go something like this. Look, Jesus went to a wedding. Jesus enjoyed himself. He enjoyed his wine. He changed rather a lot of it from water into wine. Um, He had a good party. He was able to kick back, have some fun, have a good time, um, enjoy the wine, and chill out with his mates. Right? Wrong. If we're going to read like that, I think we'd be making a big mistake. Because I think that's terrible hermeneutics. (laughs) I think it's a terrible attempt at reading into the passage a very simple understanding of what celebration might mean. Please don't do that. I want to share with you maybe a different way of understanding celebration in this passage. Because some of that is true. Was Jesus at a wedding? Yes. Did he change lots of water, uh, water into wine? Yes. Were hit lots of his friends and family there? Okay, so, so, so there's some truth in that. But my question is, what does it mean to celebrate in this passage? Because Jesus is not kicking back and having a good time. He, Jesus is, I don't, I don't think this is controversial, he is the single most influential person in history. He doesn't do things unintentionally, haphazardly, carelessly. And I think you'll agree with me as I unpack this passage with you that Jesus is being highly intentional in what he's doing here. And I think we need to look at that. We need to look, what is Jesus trying to communicate here? What's he trying to teach here? And also, what is John, the writer of this gospel, trying to communicate by choosing to include this passage? What is the motive? What is the teaching? And then I hope perhaps we'll get a little bit closer to the heart of where the celebration is in this passage. So my, my general argument is this, and by the end of it, we're all going to say a yes and amen. Celebration with Jesus is better than celebration with the world. Celebration with Jesus is better than celebration with the world. So we're going to look at this celebration theme, but first of all, maybe we can look a bit at this text uh, and at the context. John, who wrote this account, as we know, he was one of the 12 disciples of Jesus, uh, and he is highly selective in which parts of scripture he chooses to write about. In fact, you'll see that there's very, very, very few stories in John. Compare it to the other synoptic gospels, he, he chooses very, very specific things to write about. And he doesn't do it haphazardly, and we shouldn't read this haphazardly. It wasn't just that he was going through Jesus' life and he said, oh, that story will do, let's chuck in the water, wine, one. He's writing very intentionally. And in fact, the whole structure of John is that there's seven signs through the book of John. Maybe if you want to go, go home and have a look and read through, there's seven miracles, signs that Jesus is doing. And John is writing it in his way to communicate the nature of Jesus as the Son of God, to help us understand who Jesus is and what he's about. And this is the first. You know, first, this is Jesus' first act of public ministry. You've seen the presidential candidates in America. Their first um, speech announcing their candidacy is always very well scripted. It may look casual and in front of a courthouse, but they thought about it very well. Where are we going to do this? What are we going to say? What message is it going to send? First words are lasting words. And um, Jesus is being very intentional in what he's doing here. And in the Gospel of John, as we know, we got this beginning. Uh, In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. There's these cosmic beginnings to the Son of God, 
Jesus Christ. And then we move on and we see John the Baptist, to whom Jesus is revealed. And John the Baptist understands better who Jesus is. And then Jesus calls forth five of his disciples and brings them. And this is the first time we read of Jesus with his disciples um, anywhere. This is their first experience of community as disciples. So the way I'd say it is, what John is doing is, first of all, he's telling us, he's revealing to us exactly who Jesus is. Then he's, through John's experience, revealing through Jesus, who Jesus is. And I would argue that here, we're starting to see him reveal who Jesus is through his disciples. And his disciples are seeing who Jesus is. And the key to understanding this text is verse 11. I'm going to read it, and this will help us. This will be the tool with which we unpack the rest of the text. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs, there it is, first of the signs, through which he revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. So what was Jesus doing? He was revealing his glory. And what resulted? His disciples believed in him. Let's look at how what he's done has revealed glory. Because that's really, John is telling us, through this sign, Jesus revealed his glory. I want us to walk through this passage and have a look at various different ways in which Jesus is revealing his glory to his disciples and to us today as his disciples. So at the beginning, you see that Jesus uh, and his disciples have been invited to this wedding. We're told that Jesus' mother was there. That probably means she was one of the hosts. She was there and Jesus and the disciples were invited. And at some point in the party, Jesus' mother comes to Jesus and says, we've run out of wine. What was she expecting? Did she expect him to go down the corner shop, pick up some wine? Was she just going to him and saying, hey, could you figure this problem out? Was she expecting some kind of supernatural intervention, a miracle, a sign? Mary already knows all these things about who Jesus is. Maybe she's got all these hopes and these expectations. And she goes to Jesus and confronts him and tells him, we have no more wine. What does Jesus say? Woman. Not mother. Woman. How many of you call your mothers woman? (laughs) It's awkward. It's unusual. And in fact, some translations will translate it dear woman. Make it a bit less awkward. No, that's not in the Greek. It's just woman. It's not disrespectful, but it's certainly not affectionate. Why is he doing this? Why does he say woman to his mother? In fact, Jesus only talks directly to his mother four times in all four Gospels. Twice in Luke, twice in John. And in John, both times, he says woman. Never calls his mother his mother. Woman, why do you involve me? Who's here at this wedding? Jesus has got family, and Jesus has got his disciples. I think what Jesus is doing is he is declaring his allegiance to his Father in heaven ahead of his mother on earth. He is saying that biological identity is less important than spiritual identity. That his community, his family, more important than his mother and his brothers and sisters who are there at the wedding, that his family are his spiritual family. And what happens in verse 11? His disciples believe in him. And in verse 12, Jesus and his brothers and his mother go down to Capernaum, and it says his disciples come too. What we're seeing here is right from the outset of Jesus' public ministry, he's saying, if you're in my spiritual family, that is more significant 
than if you were in my biological family. And my mother does not have the authority or the right to come and tell me what to do. I am under the authority of my Father in heaven. And if I do a miracle, I do it because he has told me to, not because my mother on earth has told me to. So this brusque response, which I hope none of you will do to your mothers. (laughs) Woman, why do you involve me? What he's doing, he's laying a a line in the sand. He's saying to be a spiritual family is more important than to be a biological family. We are a family here in Jesus. And that, I would put to you, is more important than any of our biological links. To be a family in Christ. This, what we have here, is eternal. We will be together at the end of time. And I love the baptisms today. That's what it means to give birth to new members of our family. And I always imagine as the person comes up out of the water, that at the end of time, we will do the same thing. And before us will be, well, actually, the same thing. All of us. In paradise, in worshiping before the throne of God, all of us together. We are a community, a spiritual community. And we celebrate together as a spiritual community. Jesus goes on. He says, my hour has not yet come. His hour for what? Some translations say, my time has not yet come. Is this the hour for him to turn water into wine? What, what does this mean? Now, this is a, an expression which is used other times in John. In John 7, it's used. In John 8, it's used. In John 12, it's used. And it always, always refers to the time of Jesus' death. Think about this. This is his first public ministry. His first moment in public, his first sign, and already he is contemplating and conscious of his final great sacrifice on the cross. See the intention? Jesus is not acting haphazardly. He knows exactly what he's doing. He says, my hour has not yet come. Jesus is going to the cross. He will die and he will pay the price for all of our sins. And if you have nothing to celebrate today, you now do. That is the best news you're going to hear Today, tomorrow, forever. And that is, that's what it means to be a community in Christ, to celebrate that great act of crucifixion, of our sins being paid for, of forgiveness coming down from the Father in heaven, that we have an identity with the Father, that we are, we are united with Christ, that we are adopted as children, that we have redemption. He's purchased us by his blood. He's adopted us. He's justified us. He's transformed us. He's sanctifying us. He's making us new. We are a new creation, and we no longer live, but Christ now lives in us. And the life we live in the body, we live by faith in Jesus Christ who loved us and gave his life for us. That's what it means to be a community in Christ. Isn't that wonderful? And from the beginning, from the outset, Jesus is conscious of this. He's conscious that his task, his reason, or his, um, a huge reason for coming incarnate in this world is that he would pay the price for all our sins. We've got to see the critical of that, criticalness of that. Let me carry on. Jesus said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. We're told that nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 80 to 120 liters. We have, um, do we have many ceremonial washing jars in our homes? No, nor do I. Well, actually I do, because where we live in Africa, This is every day, in fact, five times a day, Muslims have to ceremonially wash themselves. And this water, um, the the, the receptacles used 
They're not receptacles you drink from. They're for ceremonial washing. And in fact, they're very dirty. They're not pure. And what they're doing is you use them to be purified, to be able to come into the presence of God. Ablutions. This is what happens today for, our, for, for Muslims all around us, all around the world. And it's what Jews would do also. They use this water to be ceremonially purified, to be able to come into the presence of God. So Jesus, he's chosen the bathtub water rather than the drinking water. And again, where we live, there's no running water. What, there's different places you hold different types of water. It's not like here where we just have taps and they run and it's happy. And Jesus, again, let's see how intentionally he's acting. He doesn't choose to use the receptacles which are available for domestic drinking water. He chooses the receptacles which hold water to purify people to come into the presence of God. And what does he do? He turns that water into wine. The water which once was used imperfectly to purify the outside of of the body, to come into the presence of God, Jesus is changing into wine. And surely he is establishing an image of what he himself will do for us. That by his blood, by the shedding of his blood, he is going to wash us clean once and for all so that we can ever and always stand before the throne of God, stand before God purified and clean and holy. Jesus is communicating here, if we will hear him. He is talking about changing from water which did not fully purify to wine, to the shedding of his blood, the blood of a new covenant which makes us all clean and pure and holy before God. And any of us today can cast ourselves upon Christ and come before God clear conscience and free and liberated from every piece of sin and filth and darkness and depression and brokenness and despair that would mire and destroy and harm. Jesus is communicating his mission from the outset. Finally, what happens? Uh, They draw the water out of these... Actually, you'll notice it's it's well written by John. He keeps the suspense going. It just says, uh, what does it say? He says, uh, now draw some out. We don't know what it is. The mystery unfolds. Um, And take it to the master of the banquet. Again, there's this this feeling of surprise, awkwardness. What's going to happen? Is it going to just be some bath water? What's going to happen? And, and, And the servants do it. Um, and they do it because Mary told them to. She's clearly someone who is able to tell people what to do, (laughs) Um, but not Jesus, incidentally. Um, And the master banquet tastes this water, and we're told that has been turned into wine. Don't you love how beautifully understated that is? The miracle doesn't actually happen in the Bible. We don't read it. We just read that water is filled to the brim in these ceremonial jars. Something is pulled out. It's taken, oh, oh, look, it's wine. That we're not told, it's not as indiscreet as saying, oh, well, the water turned into wine. It doesn't say that. We're just told that the master of the banquet, who's kind of like an MC, a master of ceremonies, he tastes the wine, and he is amazed. This wine is delicious. Jesus never does anything by halves. Jesus is 
And I would venture to you that this is, again, another thing Jesus is communicating. He's at a wedding. And he says, my hour has not yet come. What's he, what's he looking forward to? Well, he's looking to the hour of his death, to the hour of his suffering, that he knows that he will resurrect from the dead. And he knows that his father is preparing for him a bride, adorned and beautiful, his church, his people. And he is preparing to bring her to him. And the same John that wrote this book, we believe, wrote, well, I believe, wrote Revelation. Uh, and at the end of Revelation, we read this great unfolding of the wedding at the end of all time, the great banquet, the great celebration of the bride of Christ, that's us, coming before the bridegroom, that's Jesus, and celebrating. And I think that certainly Jesus has this in mind, and certainly John has this in mind as he includes this in the story. He wants to tell us more about Jesus, the, the perfect bridegroom. Jesus does not run out of wine. Jesus' wine is better. Jesus is our bridegroom, and he will not let us down. In fact, later on in John, the disciples of John the Baptist come to him and say, and concerned about Jesus, who's taking his disciples, and what does John the Baptist say? He said, the bride is for the bridegroom. Just a few chapters further on. And surely that causes us to remember back what happened at a wedding in Cana, that Jesus is the true bridegroom, and we, his bride, are for him. We, his disciples, are for him. I love the mystery in this, but I also love the intentionality with which Jesus communicates and, as we read in verse 11, reveals his glory. He is revealing his glory. And what are we told? We're told that his disciples believe in him. The disciples were celebrating at this wedding. But when the party was over, the disciples were still celebrating. You get me? Celebration with Jesus is better than celebration of the world. The disciples came out of that wedding. The party was over. Everything was finished. And then the party really started because they had found the Messiah, because they had seen an exhibition of power, a miracle, a sign of who Jesus Christ is. And that changed them forever. That's a celebration that is not going to end. That's a celebration that will get better and better. That's a celebration which is truly worthy of our joy. The joy of the Lord is our strength. The joy of the world is not our strength. What Jesus is doing here, he's bringing in a new paradigm. And what I asked earlier is, what does this text say about celebration? And we can maybe make it even, even more simple. What are we celebrating? Are we celebrating, as the disciples did, seeing Jesus' glory revealed? Because that here is the true celebration going on in this text. Far greater than any celebration that might be going on in a wedding, which will happen today and tomorrow will be finished. Actually, that's not true. Probably after several days. The great thing about living where we live is weddings last seven days. <laughs> so you're speaking to someone who knows about long celebrations, but they're very short compared to what it means to celebrate in Christ. And every day we celebrate. Every day we have cause to celebrate. Jesus' glory is revealed and we have seen it. We have a cause every day to celebrate. 
And it doesn't matter if the world comes falling down around you. It doesn't matter if you lose all that you have. It doesn't matter. It really doesn't matter. And I know it matters, but it doesn't matter. You get what I mean? Jesus redefines everything. And as we find ourselves in a hard place, and if you find yourself in a hard place today, I would like you to celebrate with me. And don't celebrate on account of anything in your life. Celebrate because Christ has purchased your life. And you are with him, and there will be a celebration at the end of time, and I assure you it will never end. This story is talking about a wedding at Cana, but Jesus is looking forward to the wedding after the resurrection at the end of time. And this story is looking at Jesus, his mother coming to him, but but Jesus (coughs) is celebrating, revealing the glory of the Father. And even we see this wine that he is changing in the immediate, right here and now, it's just helping the guests have a good time. But the miracle of changing water into wine is testifying something which his disciples are never going to lose hold of, that we today never need to lose hold of. There's a really important time dimension. The wedding is in real time, but we're looking forward to the wedding at the end of time. Jesus is saying, basically, you can choose. You can either celebrate the wedding here and now, or you can celebrate the wedding, the eternal wedding, where I will be the bridegroom. You can either drink the cup of the vine and have a good time and enjoy yourselves, or you can drink the cup of my blood and be forgiven your sins and be born again. You can be like my worldly family, or you can join as my disciples, my spiritual family. Being Christians and following Christ It's about looking back and seeing the glory of Christ revealed. It's about looking forwards and seeing when Christ's glory will be fully revealed. And it's about placing ourselves in the middle. We have cause to celebrate, but the celebration is going to get better. Don't you love, um, I'm sure you've seen, you know, well, when newlyweds get newlywed and you go see them for the first time, very quickly the book comes out. They open it up, right? And all the photos, if they're organized. Sometimes it's two or three years later. But if, <laughs> if they're organized, the book comes out and they start sharing the experience of the day, reliving it, celebrating it. Don't you love that often the first pages will be in that hotel room or downstairs sitting room with the bride making herself beautiful and the bridesmaids? And it, have you seen that in people's wedding books? It's kind of fun to start. You don't want to start with a wedding. No, 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 we need the, the build-up. We need the climax. We need, we need to start back here in the morning when we woke up and, and uh, the man was putting on his suit and looking good and the bride was adorning herself beautiful and ready for the bridegroom and we're going to the church and the bridesmaids are assembling and the grooms are waiting and it's all exciting and then, and then, and then, and then, then there's the wedding. Okay, so where should we place ourselves in this? I would put us about here. What we're doing as a family in Christ is we're working towards the climax. We're working towards the great wedding at the end of time. We're working towards the true celebration in spirit and in truth. The the celebration is good now and it's going to get better. There's going to be a wedding. And unlike worldly weddings, it's not going to end. So imagine that you are Jesus' disciples. You've witnessed this miracle. And you're left with a choice, with a decision. How are you going to interact? Are you going to celebrate because there's more wine? Or 
are you just astounded and amazed at what you've just seen? A powerful act over nature. A powerful declaration of authority. Is that going to be what catches your eye? And I suggest to you that when the disciples saw that, they couldn't care less about the wine. They couldn't care less about the celebration. They had found Jesus Christ. And that's why this verse says it, that this is the first of the signs through which Jesus revealed his glory and simply put by John and his disciples believed in him. Verse 12, on they go down to Capernaum. Jesus starts more of his ministry and his disciples are right there with him. They have witnessed something and they do not want to go away. They want to be right by Jesus' side, which is where they stay until they die. And may we be the same. So, I think we have the same choice. When we celebrate, what are we celebrating? Are we celebrating everything the world can offer? Are we celebrating the partying, the fun, the music? Is that our greatest desire? Or do we, undergirding every other part of our lives, have this beating heart which knows and celebrates Jesus Christ, Son of God, my first brother, my Savior. When you're at a wedding, what are we doing? Are we just there to have a good time? Do we want to kind of leave all that churchy stuff to one side? You know, we can celebrate with the church on Sunday, but this is wedding time. Let's celebrate here and now. Let us drink and be merry. Anyway, um, is that what we're doing? Or are, we, or are we at all times knowing celebration on account of Christ? Because the superficial way of looking at this text, and I've heard people argue this and justify this, is to say when anybody asks, you know, can Christians have a good time? It's been like, well, look, Jesus had a good time. Now, I'm not saying we can't have a good time. I'm saying we need to have a great time with Jesus Christ. Because, you know, we say, I want to party like there's no tomorrow. With Jesus, we party because there is a tomorrow. Because there is a hope. That, that's the difference. We, if we decide to celebrate Jesus, if he is our great cause and our great concern, if when we see a wedding in Cana and we see a miracle happen, May we be those that are astounded by who this Jesus Christ is and want to follow him rather than those who are kind of excited that I've got permission to have fun and drink wine. And look, here it says it in the Bible. We can go out and have a merry time and forget about all that other stuff. That's not how we live. And to realize that, to realize that celebration is only celebration if we do it with Jesus Christ. The world does not know how to celebrate. And yet, you walk into any primary school or secondary school, and you talk to anybody today about, or, you know, kids growing up, what do you want from life? What's your great goal, your great aspiration? What will they say? I don't know. I want, like, what I hear is I want to have a good time. I want to have fun. I want to live life to the full. There's so much goodness in that. And yet, there's no purpose. It's just good time for good time's sake. Fun for fun's sake. What we do is we have purpose. We have a savior. We have someone who we can truly celebrate in spirit and in truth, who we can come before and worship. And there's a reason to celebrate. What we have to do if we're the world is we have to forget 
in order to celebrate. But we can remember and celebrate. You know, Muslims, where I live, they, they know how to celebrate, but they don't know how to celebrate. We go to these weddings and they're these big events, but you know underneath there's so much brokenness and it's all just a mirage. It's a facade. It's trying to hide all of the problems beneath the celebration and let's, let's lose ourselves in the fun so that we don't have to handle the brokenness. That's not the celebration Jesus calls us to. And you see here, his disciples believed in him and they believed in him because he revealed his glory and he revealed his glory. How did he reveal his glory? By declaring that spiritual family is first and foremost. And we can celebrate as a spiritual family. Actually, to celebrate must be a communal experience. We cannot celebrate alone just as we can't really grieve alone. We must do this in community. And Jesus with his disciples is calling forth a family of celebration which will endure forever. And Jesus is also, um, he he is preparing to die to make it possible for us to participate in that communal celebration. And he will purify us as he purifies, as he takes his water and turns it into wine. So he will wash us with his blood and we will be clean. And at the end of time, you and I will be before him celebrating the great wedding of the bride and the bridegroom. So what do we do with this? How do we make sense of this? What, 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 does it, what is Jesus calling us forth to do in celebration as we read this passage? Well, First of all, I think it has implications for community, for us here. Because as I said, celebration is never or very rarely an individual experience. We can help each other celebrate. We can help call each other forth into celebration. One of my favorite passages in the whole Bible is the Magnificat. When Mary goes to Elizabeth's house, she's pregnant with Jesus. Elizabeth is pregnant too. And there's just, you've, you've read it in Luke, Luke 1, there's this overflow, this joy, this celebration. My soul glorifies um, my Lord. And my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has not ignored the humble estate of his servant. There's this just overflow. She's breaking out in song. Isn't that what's happening? She's breaking out in song. She can't contain herself. It's such good news. Wouldn't it be great just to do that for each other, to walk in someone's house? My soul glorifies the Lord. <laughs> Wouldn't it, wouldn't it be wonderful? And, uh, you know, a friend of mine and I, we, we started doing this where we live in Africa. We said that there should be cause to break out in celebration. And don't be all British on me, okay? We have something to celebrate. We can celebrate. And in whatever way we may celebrate, it doesn't have to be like that with such exuberance. But let us be a community that celebrates. Because when someone else is joyful, when someone else has cause to celebrate, you just get taken up in it. You just rejoice with it. That's why it's so special to be a family. This is what I miss. I miss you guys. You don't lead me in celebration. It's hard. To come here today and to celebrate, it gives life to do it together. Who can we help to celebrate? Who can we help in bringing forth in celebration? It's the same as Palm Sunday. Jesus is walking into Jerusalem. We we mentioned it earlier. The palms are down. The clothes are being laid out. Hosanna in the highest. It's this overflow of joy. Can we be a community that overflow with joy? In spite of the worldly challenges, in spite of the problems, we call each other forth, we proclaim truth over each other, that Jesus is Lord, and that never changes. We need to speak truth over each other, because or else we'll just start looking around us and seeing the trouble, and we won't look up and see our God who helps us scale a wall, who sees us through trouble, who brings us across the greatest of challenges. 
And we need to help each other gain that perspective of celebration. So may we celebrate as a community. May we also celebrate in evangelism. Celebrate in sharing our faith. And for me, this has been a very challenging learning point for me. You know, we say we want to go into the world, and we do. And we want, to, we want Christ to be unveiled. Christ has revealed his glory to his disciples. We want Christ to reveal his glory before our city, before our friends, before our family. And sometimes we may desire to fit in in order to be accepted and hope that in our acceptance, people will accept Christ. I would venture to you that Jesus in this passage did not fit in. He performed a miracle at a wedding. I would like to see you guys performing miracles at weddings. I would like us to go into weddings, to go into our workplaces, to go into the run of our lives and to be proclaiming Christ through a miracle, through a heart, through a... That that would be our agenda when we go into the world. That we're not trying to be like the world. We're trying to proclaim Christ. You know, the world doesn't want... Isn't attracted to us because we look like the world. The world is attracted to us because we are nothing like the world. Because we have a party that does not end. Because we have a celebration which endures. Because when all of the fun and games is over, unless you have Christ, you have nothing. So as we go to celebrate, may we not get caught up in these temporal celebrations that don't last forever. May we be caught up in the true celebration and may we bring others with us. May we proclaim Christ because he is the true celebration. I'm not saying we shouldn't have a good time. I'm saying we should have a great time and that that will only come in Christ. And finally, I think this has implications for each of us. What are we celebrating? Are we celebrating? I've been challenged. I'm preaching to myself here. Do I celebrate Christ? Each day, why am I getting up? What's getting me out of bed? Have I got a heart of celebration or am I just busy, overtaken, distracted? And even, what am I doing to have a good time? Am I kind of wanting to lay aside my celebration in Christ to find a better, as though it were possible, celebration? Or am I truly rejoicing that celebrating with Jesus is better than what the world can offer? Jesus performed a miracle at Cana in Galilee. And and let's not read that as a justification for us to go off and be merry and have fun. Let's read it as a declaration of how to have fun, of how to celebrate, of who we are celebrating. May the Holy Spirit right now be at work in us to make us a community of celebration. May he give us the joy of the Lord as our strength. May we be a people who celebrate and may the world take notice. And may we celebrate not because we have today, but because we have tomorrow. May we celebrate a celebration which will not end, which will only increase. And may we celebrate that we have a savior whose spiritual family we're a part of and that as we believe in him, we become his disciples. And may we celebrate that he died and purified us and made us clean, that we could approach the throne of grace with confidence. And may we celebrate that he waits for us like a bridegroom waits for the bride and that we will have 
truly a glorious time with glory fully revealed on the last day. And may that truth speak into every one of today's situations. What we need is a change in perspective. Always. We always need our, we need to raise our gaze and look upon Christ. And the things of this world will go strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Thanks.